When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. On last week's show, we talked about West Side Story, Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise's 1961 screen adaptation of the Broadway stage musical that turns Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet into a torn from the headlines of the 1950s story about gang warfare and racial conflict in 1950s Manhattan. Lin-Manuel Miranda and Kiera Allegra Hudi's 2005 musical In the Heights similarly feels like an attempt to capture and comment on real experiences, this time amid Manhattan's Little Dominican Republic, the Washington Heights neighborhood. The musical follows a group of mostly young people struggling with their identities and their, quote, little dreams, unquote. Like Usnavi, played by Anthony Ramos, who wants to move back to the Dominican Republic he remembers from his childhood and rebuild his father's old bar. Or Vanessa, a designer who wants to get her own place, but can't find a realtor who will rent to her. Or Nina, a young woman back from her first year at Stanford, and hailed as the neighborhood's success story, even though she's feeling isolated in a mostly white environment, and is ready to drop out of college and return to her community. Where West Side Story's conflicts are mostly external, with the gangs facing off and making Tony and Maria's love impossible, and the oppressive world of adult institutions overshadowing all of them, The conflicts in In the Heights are far more internal, as the characters try to decide what they want and who they are, whether the possible romances and moves and choices ahead of them lead to good futures, and whether they can reconcile what they want with what other people want for them. There's a big unifying event in the blackout that takes out the neighborhood's power during a lethal heat wave, but a great deal of In the Heights is just about people articulating their internal struggles via music and navigating the distance between what they want, what they're willing to admit they want, and what they're ready to seize for themselves. It's about the American dream as much as West Side Story is, but it acknowledges that that dream isn't one size fits all. And it's about each character figuring out what it means to them and how much of it the world will let them have. We all had a sueñito. And when it came to dreams, we had to keep scraping by. Maybe this neighborhood is changing forever. Maybe tonight is our last night together, however. I just want to see the whole world through our eyes. They're talking about picking out all the dreamers. It's time to make some noise. We had to assert our dignity in small ways. Little details that tell the world we are not invisible. This is the moment where you do better than me. Because you can see a future that I can. All of this? This is me. They used to say, you work hard, you live by the rules, the money will come, the things will come. You ready? I've been saving up all my pennies in my piggy bank for this day. Today's all we got, so we cannot stop. This is our block. In the heights, I'm hanging with flag, but I'm a 
So what's everybody's experience within the Heights? Had anybody seen the stage musical or uh, like listened to the music before seeing the movie? I was somewhat familiar with the uh, original cast recording, uh, not deeply, but I had uh, heard most of it thanks to uh, my friend and yours, Oliver Sava, who uh, went through a phase of playing it frequently when we lived together. So <laughs> that was my, my context for In the Heights. I'd never heard a note from it. And um, so this, so it was completely new to me. I heard a little bit, but I was kind of like when I realized with Hamilton, I kind of avoided it until I could see it. So, you know, when I, I learned there's going to be, I liked Hamilton. I was curious about what else is his other big work. But when I learned there's going to be a movie, I was like, hey, I'll just wait and, and watch the movie, which is what I did. Guys, I watched the movie before recording this episode. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this one is just really hard for me to have a like a critically informed opinion on because as I have made clear to all of you and to people on my Twitter, this is my first movie back in 15 months. And Yay. I think, I, uh, boy, did I cry <laughs> through most of it. And I, I can't say definitively how much of that is attributable to what was on screen versus just the the experience of watching it on screen, you know? So it, it's definitely... I think that is probably what I will always remember first about this film more than anything about the film itself. But I, I did enjoy the film itself, I, I think, uh, quite a bit while having some issues again with its with its third act. Um, I think there is, you know, it kind of centers on these two romances that, you know, I, I don't think either ends very satisfactorily for me. But, you know, there's, oh my gosh, the opening of this film, the, the group dance numbers in this film like just gave me everything i wanted the the location shooting in this film gave me what west side story didn't give me in, in that department but we can maybe save that for that for connections mm -hmm. um but the energy of this film from pretty much from beginning to end really kind of just picked me up and swept me along for all of it I dug it. I liked it a lot. I, I it, that being said, I, I did feel like I felt the third act kind of kind of kind of dragged. You know, yeah. I, I feel like what, one of the things I admired about it was its, its decision to uh, obviously these are characters facing some very big decisions, but there's not like a dramatic crisis necessarily that, that that's driving this film. It's more these characters like you know yearnings and and, and dreams, uh, which I liked about it. But I think I kind of caught up with with it by the end. It's like there wasn't really anything to push it to to that to, to its its final finale. And also, I, I found myself often wishing when people weren't singing that they were singing. <laughs> <laughs> that was it was kind of not not that the, that the non singing things were terrible. Or even bad, but but it's like this. The the music is so much more dynamic than when uh, there was no music happening. <laughs> and I like the songs too. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of that too, and I found myself wondering if that was just Hamilton effect mm -hmm. because yep. because like that, these are if you have any sort of familiarity with Hamilton, but not this, like you know in a instant that the same person wrote these songs mm -hmm. as wrote Hamilton. But Hamilton is a, a sung through musical, you know, there there is no non-sung dialogue or non-rap dialogue, you know. And so I think maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of dissonance there for me and perhaps you as well in terms of expecting being used to slash expecting to hear the style of singing uh, carried through in the dialogue, it not being. Though I, I did see some, I did and looking into the original production of uh, the play, I, I did see that critics were a little, were pretty hard on the book uh, mm -hmm. while liking the, the music 
quite a bit. Um, so maybe that's part of it too. And I think just generally with the third act problems, it's just, I think it's just almost a consequence of trying to adapt a Broadway musical into a movie. It's just, mm-hmm. it, they're just fundamentally unwieldy and you don't feel like there's enough story there to justify the expanse. But I didn't get, I didn't get too restless. And I, I did like the film quite a bit and uh, I'm eager to return to it to see if any of the songs stick to the ribs as much as the songs in Hamilton do but I, 90, I, I, 96,000 that's the one yeah. that's yeah. the one that's the only one though I couldn't tell you the name of any other song in the in the, in the show other than I guess the opening number is probably called in the heights they say in mm-hmm. the heights a lot um, <laughs> so I'm gonna assume that that's what the song is called uh, you are yeah, of course 96,000 is fantastic but what I appreciated about it was the direction uh, yeah. I mean obviously the, the lyrics are lively the performances it looks great but just like don't ruin the choreography i see the rob marshalls of the world <laughs> have ruined movie musicals and and uh they they cut up the choreography we don't get any sense of of space of spatial relationships and it was good to see a real dynamism in the filmmaking and it's a dynamism that is quite different from what we see in west side story which i guess we'll get into later uh but i i just appreciate it as a really thoughtful piece of direction with some really transcendent shots. I mean, that opening bit where he's looking out the window and you see the, like the reflection of everyone dancing on the streets. I mean, that is just great. <laughs> I mean, that's a great, mm-hmm. great shot. Um, and it, you know, and that's the first time we see like a group of dancers do anything. It's just, it's, it's through the reflection first. And he, he pulls that, it pulls that trick. The director, uh, it's John Chu, right? John mm-hmm. M. Chu. Um, yep. he pulls that, that trick off too, I think in a more minor way, in the store where through like a through like the freezer door you know um uh it's just it's a, it just involves two characters but i do like the kind oh, of yeah. use of a, of a reflection of someone uh, being are you talking about the, the smiley face yeah part? yeah yeah, that was, yeah. it's adorable so yeah i mean it's very cleverly done and it picks you up and as i said in the first episode i, I really like to hear characters saying about their hopes and dreams <laughs> and how much they care for each other i mean that kind of stuff is it's very pure and uh and i, I fall for it almost every time so are you not mourning the uh kenny ortega version yeah. of this film that that could have been scott oh, was speaking that, was of that, he yeah, was originally I, I, attached i am very strongly not mourning that that's right <laughs> Choose good, and as someone who has taken great enjoyment from the Step Up films, uh, he I think he directed the best two Step Up films, which was Step Up to mm-hmm. the Streets and Step Up 3D, which I did not tragically see in 3D. I mean, there's a gloss, there's a very high gloss to his work that I, I don't know that does and doesn't serve the material here, I think, but mostly does, but just the competence <laughs> in like the imagination and in like the, the just the energy is so helpful uh, to bring this all this material across yeah it feels like a very old school like a very classic styling for a movie musical in somewhat the same way la la land did like especially in the opening sequence i got just really strong la la land vibes and that feeling of somebody trying to recapture the energy of like a an mgm movie musical like that particular era uh, the era of big broad screens and big broad compositions as opposed to super choppy editing and super close-up uh visions of, of dancers we can't actually tell what they're physically doing or where you don't have an ensemble and you're not just like standing back as far as possible to take it all in at once. I had pretty much the same experience as Genevieve in that this was my first uh, experience back in a movie theater since quarantine slash quarantainment started. 
And I found myself very emotional about the whole thing for reasons that weren't necessarily uh, entirely reflected in the movie. My big quibble with the film is less with the third act and more that I really, really don't like either of the big romantic stories in this movie. I don't feel any sense of stakes for either of those uh, two pairs of people to get together. And Benny and Nina eventually kind of won me over with that, again, very old school, like like felt like a Fred Astaire movie, dance up the side of a building. Oh, yeah, that was a cool sequence. Mm-hmm. And, and like a very like movie musical it's, specifically. Like if you're talking about stage to screen, like that is a movie musical it's sequence. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly a movie musical. So is the sequence at the swimming pool, which I, I absolutely loved that. 96,000. Yeah. The scope yep. and the, the colors and the ridiculous excess of it all, I think was really amazing. But I, I, a lot of what sold me on this was just the wordplay. You know, that that Lin-Manuel Miranda wordplay. You were talking about not being able to remember the songs, the individual songs. I found myself just really bowled over by Benny's Dispatch, which is just a character singing directions and kind of reminding us. It's it's an introduction song. It's this is who I am. This is what I do. And this is what I want all packaged into one number. But it is just so lyrically dense and kind of like joyously playful in a way that I find just really funny and really uh, appealing. And the parts of this musical that I dug most all had that kind of sense of of play about them, that sense of I'm introducing you to like a culture and a way of life and a specific setting, a specific neighborhood and a specific set of characters. And that's a tall order. So we're just going to take our time with it. And if it takes up the whole first act, that's fine. And that was so much more interesting to me than than the attempts at plot resolution. But I think this movie is probably pretty flawed and I, I don't care. I had such a good time with it at the, yeah. at the theater. I had such a good time with it, like on a big screen. I mean, I love Anthony Ramos in in this film. Um, for for those uh, unaware, he was in Hamilton. He was a uh, dual role of uh, John Lawrence and Philip. And he was also, I think, eventually uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's understudy. And of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda originated the role of Usnavi in the play. So there's certainly sort of an implied passing of the baton, not even implied, like they, they kind of I think actually, yeah, like that that opening scene where Usnavi is uh, going to the bodega and passes Lin Manuel Miranda as the Piragua dealer uh, dealer, <laughs> <Piragua> <laughs> seller, uh, um, Piragua guy, uh, and they he they give each other like a high five, like it's a, almost a literal passing of the baton, passing the Piragua. Um, but all of this is to say, like I think even though he is saddled with some not always stellar material, I found it just impossible to take my eyes off of Anthony Ramos in this film. He's just generally really good. He's really good in A Star is Born. Um, he's good in, uh, Scott, I believe you also recently saw Honest Thief. He's, he's good as- I did uh, see as, Honest Thief. Yeah. He has a nuanced role in that, in yeah, that yeah. film too. Kind of, kind of a- bad guy with a you know lingering conscience what's interesting to me uh, one of the interesting things to me about lin well miranda is of course his sort of corny optimism mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of defi- which is which is present here and present in hamilton as well and how i think for you genevieve to go back to that show i think i think that optimism sort of curdled for you over time a bit not even optimism i think it's just like the earnest it's the non-stop earnestness like it's never like cut with anything else 
I think. And I yeah. think that I, it doesn't bother me too much, but I can tell it bothers other people a lot. <laughs> and I think you could also say that it a film like this or a story like this accommodates it a little bit easier than some depiction of history right i mean this is this is anyway i mean though i guess the stakes are pretty high yeah, here too. i mean i don't know like when you apply that optimism whatever bright-eyed optimism to characters in these situations like like sure i mean it, it's it's lin-manuel miranda is very celebratory and this is a celebratory production but by extension isn't really equipped to engage with things that aren't celebratory and i think that's where some of sort of the the criticism of this film's politics uh so, so where a lot, some of the controversy around this film is is stemming from is that it is just lin-manuel Miranda's outlook doesn't necessarily jibe with a more i think cutting examination that people maybe expect with some of the subject matter that is implied here but not really engaged with but i think i guess from his perspective he would say something like i just i want to you know See the, best of, yeah. see the best of humanity like what like see what the possibilities are you know our hopes and dreams uh, what we what we do when we're at our best and most hopeful like what can be accomplished then corny optimism but effect affecting <laughs> in this case yeah. i mean one of the things that i kind of admire about this story is that one of the more resonant stories is not about corny optimism it's about a girl looking at where corny optimism got her and how she feels about mm. it and what she actually wants and then struggling with how not just to let down her father by saying like, I, I don't want to stay at Stanford, but how to let down a whole neighborhood that's kind of turned her into a talisman, into a symbol of their, their yeah. upwardly mobile success. Like she doesn't want to be alone, but she also doesn't want to be, she, well, she doesn't want to be anybody and everybody's symbol. And the the problem with this plot line for me was a little bit like, okay, but you're like, you're homesick. Like when a kid tells you that they're lonely and homesick at summer camp, you don't immediately go like grab them and, and bring them back because, uh, you know, they're, you, you leave them there for another week and <laughs> they at the end of the summer, they don't want to come home. And she's meant to be older than that, although her styling when we first meet her, I literally thought she was 14 years old. And when I found mm -hmm. out that she's meant to be in a relationship with Benny or meant to have uh, like mutual romantic interest that may or may not be resolved, I was a little unnerved and a little put off because he looks so much older than she does. And it took me a while to realize how old she's supposed to be. But I don't know. I wish people had engaged just a little more with the idea of like, well, you still you haven't been that, there that long. Like you haven't found your community. And part of growing up and getting out in the world is, is finding your community wherever you go, as opposed to coming back here and starting over. So, you know, there's a lot going on with her in terms of what she's experienced and what she wants. But I enjoyed the fact that the musical contends with these, you know, the, it, it isn't simple, basically. It, it isn't just... Mm -hmm you get out of the neighborhood and you've made good and that's it. Like you, there are actually considerations in a life after that. The thing about Nina though, is that she, like she was also at school, the victim of, 
targeted racism, you know, mm-hmm. she, she, she was searched, you know, and kind of going back to, you know, how well equipped this film is to engage with more thorny uh, subject matter. I think that Nina's opening song where she's talking about all these sort of expectations uh, placed on her and, and the weight of that um, is so much more effective as characterization. Uh, and so much more memorable than the scene very late in the film in dialogue where she's like, I was searched, you know, and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be this this big bomb, you know, and it's it's delivered in dialogue, not in song. And it just has none of the, the nuance or interest that Nina's big opening song does that, you know, is engaging with this idea through a framework that Tasha, as you put it, is, is like, could be just read as homesickness, but there's... It's presented in a way that shows you that it's more than that, than just homesickness, you know, whereas the reveal of this thing that happened to her at school that even it was very affecting feels like it just doesn't land at all the way it's presented. I really don't think yeah. it lands. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything you just said, <laughs> Genevieve. <laughs> I think I think that I think the book sort of lets lets that character down in a way that the, that the, the music and lyrics do not, um, though. Uh, speaking of corny things, I I did I I did I was kind of moved by uh, Jimmy Smith's uh, scene with her t- towards the end of the movie when we talks about uh, her vision of the future. I thought uh, you know again that whole thing is engineered in a very hammy way, but uh, yeah. Did you know the film killed off Nina's mom? Uh, <laughs> oh, Jim, really? Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there are a couple. Uh, she has a, a mom and dad in the play. Wow, how about that? Yeah, much the, isn't there a whole plot about them not liking Benny? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. uh, there's definitely some class and and color, uh, you know, issues tied up in that relationship that the film uh, mostly opts to forgo. He's such a nice guy. How can you not like him? He's so good at yeah. dispatch in rap form. Right, he's yeah, so he good works, at dispatch. He works for him too. He's 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 good at his job. Yeah. Come on, Jimmy Smith's too bad. Well, I mean, he may want somebody who's always also college bound for his daughter, who's so much of her uh, her going off to college has become his identity. You know that he's willing to sacrifice yeah. all of his businesses and all of his own future. You know, it's it's very symbolic. He's literally willing to shut down his own future and sell it off in order to give his daughter the future that he's envisioned for her, and she doesn't want that for him. But it's it's something that Benny doesn't have an option to do. You know, Benny doesn't have the ahead of him that that sense of uh, future and that sense of being able to give her what uh, Jimmy Spitz, Spitz character wants for her. So, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely a class issue. That isn't why I objected to the romance. It was mostly the sense that she was 14 years old. And uh, and, and the, again, the two of them kind of won me over by the end with, with their dance. I just I want to talk about Usnavi and Vanessa and how well. little I cared about that romance because, you know, he shout out to shy people everywhere. I like I understand it's it's hard to ask people out. But my fundamental feeling is if you don't have the ability to talk to another person, you can't be in a relationship with them. And the feeling that he's, you know, the the underdog who deserves to get the girl, even though he can't ask her out and can't dance with her and then responds to her dancing with other people by actively trying to make her jealous and then throws a tantrum at her. Just like every step of that felt toxic and controlling and gross to me. And I'm like, we're supposed to be rooting for these two, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it, it just keeps leaning in that direction as the, the story goes on. And there was just not a, I don't think there was a single moment where I was convinced by it or rooting for them. They reminded me an awful lot of Roger and Mimi and Rent, who I have kind of similar feelings about. Like, at least they can talk to each other. But if you're fighting all the time, if you reject fundamentally everything about each other, like you don't belong in a relationship and your musical is not going to sell me on how important your relationship is. I don't know. I, I rooted for them just because they're yeah, they're not they're not very deeply developed characters, but they're they're young people in love, you know, and they're they're all nice. <laughs> everyone this everyone this whole play is nice, which is sort of like kind of a flaw in a way, but but it's also kind of refreshing. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate I don't want to I don't want to use the term low stakes because obviously, like I said, there's big stakes for all these all these people, long-term consequences for their lives, but but again, there's, there's not, no villain. No, there's no villain, and there's no you know no blackout aside. <laughs> yeah, blackout aside, there's no looming catastrophe over this whole thing. Um, nothing, nothing's life or death uh, unless you're, you're very old and don't take your medicine, I guess. But yeah, at the same time though, they're they're all such like they're not deeply realized, but likable people that I that I, that you you want happiness for them. I did. I, I don't know. I'm not mean like the rest of you guys. I do want to talk about that number that you just referenced where uh, well, uh, Claudia dies, because that song felt to me like just such a an unnecessary left turn for the musical. Oh, I like that sequence. Hey, let me finish the sentence. Okay, the, okay, okay. It, it's a diversion into the the life and mind of somebody who you really don't know all that much about, you know, you, you know, some of her actions, you know, how other people feel about her. And it just feels like such a distraction. But then it's so beautifully staged. It's just, I mean, it's heartbreakingly gorgeous. And uh, Alice Brooks' cinematography is, I think, really sharp. And the, like, the colors are glorious and the, the shooting is, is luminescent. But in that sequence in particular, where you get to see who Claudia was before she dies, I think just the, the staging of it, the costuming, the dancing, the, the color, the cinematography sells a song that, that feels like it could easily be cut without losing any part of the story and turns it into just this, this really tragic moment where you get to see somebody's world, like in the moment before it's snuffed out. It's just, it's a really heartbreaking and, and kind of shattering look at what mortality means to people. And as I uh, understand it, in the play, it is it is utilized differently. It is it is not sung right before uh, Abuela Claudia's death. It is sung right as she is deciding whether or not to return to the Dominican Republic with Usnavi. And sort of the the end of that song is her discovering that she has the winning lottery ticket. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some changes in the in the adaptation here that in this case in particular, I think change the the meaning of of that song. You know, here in the movie, it's her looking back on her life and but it was written for the stage as a song about making a decision of what to do next so yeah, that, 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 i was actively confused about that in the movie because that, that, that's what i thought she was singing about until at the end of the thing she's she's uh, no longer with us because yeah i thought that was the decision she, you know there there is stuff in there about like whether she should go back to the you know mm-hmm. to the Dominican Republic or not that's that's there um mm-hmm. but then that then that part of it just kind of goes well I wouldn't we'll be back with her since she's from Cuba but you know what i'm saying right. um yeah but but then it kind of it takes a, a shift and is more suggestive of mortality as as Tasha says but um it, nevertheless it's a good decision i think ultimately it's a very fine 
moment and it was it, it's nice to kind of get to know that character is something deeper than just kind of like this generic maternal figure that everyone sort of turns to in the neighborhood like there's more to her than that and i think that that number kind of deepens that character it's also a i think a way to showcase and honor olga maridas who uh originated the role on broadway and played it for its entire run and won a tony award for it um i believe she is the only uh, actor in the film playing the the same role she she did uh, on on stage um, so it feels like kind of how it was presented here, because this film cut a lot of songs, uh, I think like 10 songs or something from from, mm. from the stage play. And I think, Tasha, you just, you know, characterize it as a song that could have been cut. But I think it was uh, probably included here and sort of retrofitted to be a, uh, a a bigger showcase for this actor who is very central to this production. We should probably move into connections. Are there any other kind of big picture thoughts about In the Heights before we bring it into uh, comparison? I just want to like call out one other number that I really like. I guess I could do this in connections because it's it's really about the dancing, but I don't know how deep we'll be able to get into the comparing the dancing here. Um, but one of my favorite numbers, and I apologize because I am physically unable to roll my R's, so I'm going to pronounce this uh, in a very gringo way. But Carnival de Barrio was, I think, one of the highlights for me, where like all the different Latinx cultures in this melting pot of Washington Heights get their little moment, you know, um, your, your Dominicans and your Puerto Ricans and your Cubans, and they all get to do, a, they all get a moment and they all get a distinctive dance. And to go back to like one of my complaints about West Side Story is that like there's not enough cultural variety in the dancing to be a story about two gangs from two different cultures. And I feel like in this one sequence, a Carnival de Barrio, you get like so much of that and you see like how much variety there is and you know it's more than just an eight count of mambo and you're good (laughs) which is the west side story approach (laughs) yeah that that piece in and of itself just feels like it's kind of the ultimate and there's no story here like this is not progressing a story forward in a meaningful way it's just a celebration it's a celebration of diversity and, and variety and culture and it's a celebration of the neighborhood coming together you know, I, I think one of the things about West Side Story that it, it got heavily criticized for, especially in like more modern reconsiderations of it, uh, but even back at the time, is that there are only two races in it or, you know, there are only two ethnicities, uh, white people and Puerto Rican people. There are no considerations of uh, like anybody else. And the fact that here is not culture. Yeah, exactly. Well, it certainly doesn't get into culture all that much apart from, uh, you know, cracking a few jokes about the the Puerto Ricans speaking, being bilingual, basically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is an acknowledgement that these kind of neighborhoods can often have like a high percentage of people from from one specific country or culture, but they also tend to be very melting pot-ish. You know, they they often tend to have people who are culturally similar, but from very different countries and with very different specific traditions and kind of blending it all into this like big joyous group celebration of everybody, uh, I think just just felt really good for a summer musical. That's all like con- a connection, Tasha. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what the connection is. Uh, I, I disagree a little with uh, Genevieve about there not being enough distinction between the, the Puerto Ricans and the uh, the white boys dancing in West Side Story. 
because uh, we have that that dance at the um, at the the Y or whatever the equivalent was, where the Puerto Ricans are all doing the mambo and the the white kids are all doing like these sort of jitter buggy like neck- the mambo, which is not even a Puerto Rican dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that that's exactly what I was referring to because we get like an eight count of mambo and then that's it. <laughs> you, but you with know. everybody yelling mambo as if uh you know yeah. these these super racist angry white kids that don't want any like Latinx representation in their uh, their neighborhood would be like yelling yelling mambo after every eight count. Yeah, fair. But that's as maybe we can get a little deeper into that and, uh, you know, dancing connections, cultural connections, and a whole lot more uh, when we talk about the connections between West Side Story and In the Heights. That your mother and I got rest of soul, we came here and we emptied our savings to put a down payment on Rosario's. Two Burgundy Cadillacs. That was your fleet? Hmm? Start small, dream big. <laughs> <laughs> I look at you, Mia, I see her. If she were here, she would have done the same thing that I did today. Dad? I sold Rosario's. Felicidades. Raise the glass. Felicidades. Yes, get that money. (laughs) To Nina, hmm? who can now finish what she started at Stanford. To Nina. To Nina. To Nina. Nina, say thank you, puppy. Dad. The deadline passed. Ah, mentira, mentira. Stop with the lying, huh? I called them. I called them. Stop trying to protect me here. There were other things other than the finances. Did you not hear what I said? Yes, about the ignorant idiotas. That's the same thing that we first saw when we came here, right, Claudia? No, it's not the same thing, Dad. It's not the same. When you came here and Mom came here, you all had a, a, a Latino community ready to welcome you, open arms. Babies and abuelas and teachers and lawyers, first generation, fifth generation. There's no community for me at school. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, anybody particularly want to kick something off here? Whoever wants to just dance into the center <laughs> of the circle uh, with your partner and uh, we'll all clap. Well, uh, well, I will begin by noting that these are both stage-to-screen musicals, <laughs> and uh, they uh, they both uh, have certain conventions of the form, but I think they also uh, kind of show the evolution of of the stage-to-screen musical. We talked a little bit about the the overture in uh, in West Side Story, as well as the intermission. God, I miss a movie intermission. <laughs> we, we we needed it, but you know, West Side Story. Uh, the film feels in many ways like it is attempting to be a somewhat direct translation of the the theater experience, you know, what with these, it's sort of being presented as if it would have been on stage, but with these new cinematic tricks. <laughs> um, and within the Heights, I, like, I don't, it would have been interesting if if there had been an overture. And I think like, Every now and then you get a film, modern film that tries to do an overture or an intermission, but it's definitely more of like a novelty now. But where I think you definitely see sort of that convention come out in in the Heights is that big opening number. And also in the addition of of the framing device um, of of Usnavi talking to uh, these kids in what we are uh, led to believe is the Dominican Republic. But uh, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert, it, it is not in one of the film's lamer reveals yeah, <laughs> in my, not in a my fan. opinion yeah but i think that that temptation to add a framing device and kind of 
present the musical film as a, a story that is being told by a narrator is sort of a, a more modern instinct. They're both, um, the two films, like they're not using the same conventions, but I think they, they both are good representatives of how films over the years have approached the matter of translating something that was made for the stage to the screen. I, I feel kind of bad for those kids having to. They, they, they did a great. They did a great job uh, uh, hiding their boredom as, as, as Navi told his story uh, when they really probably wanted to go outside. Um, it, was the, it was became how I met your mother during those sequences. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. it, did, it did have a little of that feel. Yeah, that's a good. One. That's a good uh, comparison. Um, one thing I will say in terms of style. I mean, I think they're both trying to break out and do things with the camera that you can't do on stage there's no there's mm-hmm. no camera uh, to, they're going to lead our eye into right. uh, certain things but but they do it differently i don't feel like in the heights is really a classical old school musical i think it has references to that in um you know the busby berkeley-ishness of the of the pool um sequence or of course the sequence where they're walking uh on the side of the building i mean th- those are two definite kind of throwbacks but i think it is a superior version of of a more modern form of of musical i think i think we i think which is a little bit more i guess music video influenced than old timey old than old musical influenced uh because i don't see a huge amount of connection between the two there's a there's an emphasis on movement and cutting and and you know certain a certain kind of like punchy dynamism that that really isn't what I expect from uh, the music classic musicals of of the past, and, and and is not what we get in West Side Story, which is West Side Story is so much of an era of musicals where that were being shot in large format, right? Being shot in seventy millimeter, uh, where all, all of the choreography was being done like mise en scene. It's all being done within the frame rather than with a lot of cutting there's just a lot of there's this very large you know cinemascope frame that you can kind of fill with with, with characters and balance the frame in a certain way and uh i mean I don't, i'm not even saying one is necessarily superior to the other but I, I think there's a pretty strong contrast between the two in terms of like the the, the type of style i guess they're adopting in the Heights also is self-referential in a way that I, I feel is is very modern or like there there's multiple Hamilton references <laughs> in yes. this in this movie um, that I just don't think you would get anything like does West Side Story have a, any like references to other Sondheim in it you know like it's just mm-hmm. it, it's just it feels like such a a modern inclination to add this little wink and a nudge that like. I see you out there, audience. You're smart. You get this. It's part of the LMMCU, the Lin Manuel Miranda <laughs> Cinematic Universe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I think there's just there's obviously a huge inclination on Lin Manuel's part to. I mean, his his lyrics are just stuffed with pop culture references, yeah. uh, references of music. Anyway, uh, that, changed that, the Donald Trump. There, there was a Donald Trump lyric in the original. It, it got mm. changed to I think Tiger Woods here. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, none of that stuff is, is in West Side Story. I don't think that that kind of language. They just have different styles. And I, and I think that you, I think they, I think the filming of both kind of complements, you know, the, the music 
in their own ways. I don't, I don't necessarily think a West Side Story style would suit in the Heights or, or vice versa. Although Sondheim and Lin-Manuel Miranda both like legendarily celebrated for the difficulty of their lyrics, mm-hmm. for lyrical density, for for mm-hmm. word trickery, for referential, uh, like a kind of kind of circular feeding on its own tail. Uh, kind for of, syncopation. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, it, it always it always throws me a little bit when the the boys go into when you're a jet at the at the beginning, how the way the lyrics are supposed to work with that song feel like they're racing and competing with the music rather than singing along to the music. It's just, it's a very difficult, it's a very easy song to sing without the music. But if you listen to what it's doing with the music, it's like it's competing. And uh, it's just a very strange choice. Yeah, they both use, I think, lyrics as percussion sometimes. Yeah, very true. We dread um, future high school productions of In the Heights <laughs> and Hamilton, uh, which, which I am I'm at the exactly right age <laughs> point in my fatherhood to probably hit at some point. <laughs> oh, Fair boy. enough. For what it's worth, I have seen some spectacular <laughs> my, 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 musical my, productions. My, my, my ten year old, my ten ten year old is one hundred percent going to be a part of one of those productions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your job to be proud, no matter. Uh, I will. What oh, else I happens. definitely will be. I definitely well, will be. I, speaking of. M- Musical conventions. It's interesting to me that In the Heights essentially has a, a narrator, you know, as somebody who frames the story and kind of explains it to us. Like, here's where things take place. Here's who I am. And here is what I do. Here are the important people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. And so forth and so on. And uh, like it it all comes complete with a piece of closure framing at the end. West Side Story doesn't bother with any of that. The West Side Story doesn't bother with explaining the specificity of this one specific neighborhood in New York where this is happening. It's almost like they expect you to understand that this kind of clash is probably happening, you know, in every square mile of Manhattan right now to some degree. It's the the whole idea of Tony and Maria that we were talking about being kind of universal symbols rather than specific people just really kind of feeds into the fact that, yeah, you you don't need to be told who really any of these people are. There's no POV character. There's enough going on that there's no time for somebody to explain it all to you. But and yet the story works fine. I mean, like, West Side Story is extremely underpopulated. <laughs> you, feel like, you feel like New York is kind of a ghost town in West well, Side Story. There's, you're, Maybe. you're dealing with people who hang out later than anybody else reasonable wants to be up, which is why the uh, the jets get yelled at out of the tenement window at one point. It's like, you guys are doing all this singing and dancing. Normal people are just trying to sleep, man. I, I mean, I think it also is, you know illustrative of maybe another connection that, that we could move on to, which is the use of location shooting versus sound stages. And this is sort of a contrast point, but not because West Side Story has both. It does have some location shooting again in, in the opening in, per, in particular, but then it kind of falls back to sound stages and, and in my opinion gets a much... I mean, it, there, there's certainly like moments of beauty captured in those soundstage sets, but in the Heights just feels so much more crowded in general, but it also just feels more more vibrant and lively and less stage-like than, than West Side Story does. It feels a lot more open. I mean, sequences mm-hmm. like the, the Carnivale sequence could definitely be shot on like a backlot soundstage and we probably wouldn't notice, but it feels like that's a movie that, that mostly takes place outdoors in real places. 
Whereas to some degree, West Side Story, like while the soundstage stuff feels very deliberately stylized in a way that that Wise and Robbins were probably consciously going for, especially where they start to like really abstract the backgrounds of uh, the the places that things are taking place. It it's still the fact that we get both uh, the the big open real spaces and then the claustrophobic sound spaces. I, I think makes the interior stuff feel more claustrophobic. And to some degree, maybe it's meant to. I mean, cool takes place inside a garage because the the boys at that point are not safe for the outside world. They're not in a space where they should be interacting with the outside of the world. So it, it makes sense to contain them in this this pretty artificial little space that they've created for themselves in a garage. But it still feels so artificial compared to something like the pool sequence and then the heights or even just kind of the 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 opening numbers where we're like strolling along through the streets kind of getting that sense of what this neighborhood feels like on different blocks and different corners with different groups in the heights is so glossy though and, uh, you know even though i i don't feel like it, it even if all of it is shot on location i i i did think like you know nothing is out of place nothing feels like gritty necessarily uh you know about it 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 has that i mean and i think that's maybe a a a john chu touch or something but it has i mean all the gloss that crazy rich asians had for me in terms of like it's very slick the 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 film in a way that works i mean it works for the movie but it doesn't necessarily make it feel that much more connected to the real world than west side story but I don't think it's it's fair to equate realism with grittiness. I think what what in the Heights has is liveliness, you know, it, yeah. and that is I think maybe where where Chu's style is, uh, you know, a, a benefit here. I like I I don't think Chu can maybe can do gritty, you know, but he can right. certainly do lively and exciting. And I think that to go back to sort of what we were discussing about, you know, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's tendency toward you know ce- the celebratory, I think that makes sense here oh no i I, it definitely does but i think if the intention was it doesn't have anything like kind of a documentary like Mm -hmm. quality to me it doesn't it it, you know i i didn't feel like wow i'm really getting like you know a picture of what this neighborhood is 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 like i mean it's a little more hyper real than that and kind of slick and polished and scrubbed it needs to be like taxi driver or something right (laughs) just Just grind go, go, all, go all the way with this thing. Um, uh, it is, and of course, it's, it becomes really conspicuous in West Side Story. Uh, the the difference between those those opening shots and then you know the you know opening number and then the rest of uh, a lot of the rest of the musical, which is you know again you you take advantage of the soundstage too of being able to control the lighting and to be able to you know do things that wouldn't make a lot of sense if you were trying to make uh put this against a more realistic you know backdrop of the city yeah, i think the spiel not to sidetrack but i think the spielberg one was largely shot on location so that'll make for an interesting contrast when that film comes out i think one thing that we should talk about it here is how both present the american dream and i think it's a pretty stark contrast there's a lot more i i mean from the song America to the treatment of the Puerto Rican characters uh, 
by the cops. There's there's a lot of optimism about, about these characters, re, you know, fulfilling their American dream. Apart from this, uh, the kind of the sense that the Jets, the the white characters, were immigrants too, and and a generation later they feel a kind of ownership over this neighborhood. Not that they're doing great either. So uh, I I don't think there is sort of the, it, it is um, a somewhat jaundiced take on the idea that that you can make it in america uh in a way that i think you know i think it's the idea here is to challenge viewers um and kind of uh, i think it's it's kind of raise west side story is definitely designed to raise awareness about a particular moment in history and in a way that that you know as scott said that's kind of fallen away for him watching it now not that the immigrant experience has gotten any easier but i think the specific qualities it's it's specific experiences it's references here belong to a uh, to a different a different era, uh, whereas I, in the Heights is for all the talk with the lawyer at the end about whether or not Sonny will be able to uh, resolve his immigration status. Yeah, he's gonna. <laughs> you know, <'cause> it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, this, this, there is sort of an, um, a fundamental optimism to uh, this this piece. Um, there's a sense that there's hardship, but it's definitely the the DACA stuff um, and the protest at the end and the sort of Sonny's immigration woes. Are almost outliers in in, in in the rest of the story here. Uh, in terms of it's 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 not necessarily about that aspect of of being an immigrant in New York. Well, also in, in the Heights, these are for for the most part, you know, they're they're second generation. You right, know, they, right. they 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 didn't directly immigrate themselves. It, it, Usnavi, I think maybe when he was very very young, it's if, if I'm recalling correctly. Mm-hmm. But there is like that that beat with uh, Sunny where where Usnavi is talking to him about coming back to the Dominican Republic with him, and he's like, "No, this is <laughs> this is where I've always known. You know, this is this is my country now." And it, it's it's interesting that like in the Heights. Heights' story is sort of predicated on the desire to emigrate, <laughs> you know, from, from America. And obviously, that doesn't happen in the end. But I think like, sort of the way that the film has these, these immigration issues kind of, they're not as central to the characters like day to day experience is a contrast with just sort of the era that of immigration that we're seeing in West Side Story, which is like there was a, a huge, huge influx of of Puerto Ricans specifically into I mean they weren't I mean they're 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 Americans. <laughs> it even says it right, right there in in the song America. Like they Puerto Rico is technically part of America at this point in history, but uh, you know, I don't know the history well enough, but as I understand it, like in the mid 50s, there was just a, a giant influx into New York City of of Puerto Ricans. So, and West Side Story, Tasha, as you said, it wasn't even initially conceived to be about Puerto Ricans, but it just because that was sort of what was happening culturally at the time, it became a, a story point here. If you do the math, these are basically, you know, the West Side Story generation is a Wayless generation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, and then the goal becomes different too, because you know, with when West Side Story, you know, you get the song somewhere, which is kind of really just about like, where is there even a place for us to be, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and you you can't even get more specific than that. We just need some place where our love can flourish you know uh, uh, we can transcend our situation it's not even that specific whereas in the heights there are very specific dreams that these characters are trying to achieve all of them you know small dreams i guess right Mm -hmm. according to the movie 
I think it's really interesting in terms of the American dream that in West Side Story, there's no, we don't really know apart from the biggest, broadest generalities, what any of the immigrant characters actually want. Like they, they bring up in the song America that like the men are angry because the only jobs they can get it are waiting tables and shining shoes. Like they feel like they're being disrespected and they can't get better jobs, but we don't have a single person who has a dream, who has a specific thing they want to do that they're being held back from. There's not any sense of any of them having desires for careers or educations, like anything specific, apart from Chino apparently wanting to marry Maria. And in In the Heights, the desires are very specific. You know, Usnavi keeps pointing out that they're just little dreams, but these little dreams are the dreams of, of people's entire future, you know, helping other immigrants achieve uh, citizenship status or reacquainting himself with uh, his, his like childhood memories of his home country and with his father's dream, you know, reassembling the, the bar that, that was his father's big dream. Like there's specificity there. Uh, Vanessa and Nina and Sonny like all have very specific things that, that they want. And I feel like that's one of the things that gives In the Heights kind of more shape and more flavor is the sense that they're not after the American dream, like the big glossy banner that has absolutely no footnotes or details under it. They're each chasing something specific. And as a result, like the barriers that get in their way are are kind of equally specific. And I just think the story is so much more interesting when they're they're chasing those specific dreams than when they're ch- chasing the the very bland and generalized romance. I also think it's very interesting that Riff and his boys, none of them like the big thing that comes up with, you know, racist people fussing over Im- immigrants is like the fear of, of their jobs being taken. That never comes up because Riff and his boys don't want jobs like they look <laughs> they look down on slash are kind of horrified at Tony for moving on from gangbanging and taking a simple job. They sing about how like taking small jobs would make them into slobs. This they don't want that for themselves at all. They don't feel like the Puerto Ricans are like muscling in on their ability to to find careers or make livings or even pursue their own version of the American dream. They just want to feel like they own their streets. And now they, they can't, you know, unequivocally own their streets and bully other kids as well as they used to be able to. One of the big debates or maybe the biggest debate that is sort of swirled around in the Heights is the colorism debate, specifically the absence of darker skinned, you know, Afro Latinx characters in in the Heights and the feeling that this very large and important part of that neighborhood is not reflected in this film that is about this neighborhood. And then, of course, you know, with West Side Story, we have uh, <laughs> controversy over the fact that that uh, you know Rita Moreno is pretty much the only is the only Puerto Rican in the in the cast, actual Puerto Rican, certainly in the, in the major cast. And, and there's a lot of brown face and a lot of things that we would be treated with with true horror if it were released <laughs> today. But 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 it is still pretty uncomfortable uh, to to watch now. So um, I'm curious to. I was curious to see what everyone thought about the In the Heights controversy because it has been really kicked up in a pretty big way. Uh, Rita Moreno herself was involved in it in a way that w- w- was uh, 
again, not uncomfortable for for everybody. And I, I'm interested in, in uh, what we think of the controversy and also how it is kind of steered the discussion and the perception of the film itself. It's one of the things that that wouldn't occur to me, and then I realize that's a shortcoming of me as uh, of your as it from my limited perspective. I think our friend Monica Castillo has been doing a really good job covering this for NPR, uh, and her reaction was basically, and who who is whose family is from Cuba, but she you know she loved the movie, and then right either this this came this came about and and, and she did a really good job explaining like why not only is it just like a, a little bit of oversight it's it's part of a it's a problem within uh the latinx community in in, in general um um so you know i i felt like you know having that explained to me i like you know that it is is a mistake and i think i think um, Linda Mel Miranda cop to it, um, and you know, said he needed to do better. It doesn't change the film that we have. Uh, I think I, I felt like the discussion on Twitter, as it often does, became uh, very um, sort of either or, and it's like suddenly we had a bad film on our hands because of this. But I think you know, uh, I think it would be a, a mistake also to just ignore it and say you know the film's really good. It's it's got great rep- representation, and uh, you know that that's just a net positive and. And we can ignore the rest of the thing, which seemed to be what Rita Moreno was was trying to do uh, when she talked about the song Colbert and was somewhat uh, loudly shot it down. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing because I, I really sympathize with what she said because I I feel that way myself sometimes. Just like you know, every as I've said before on this podcast, I get pitches every day that are like you know this thing that's been hailed as a like groundbreaking in its diversity failed in this one aspect can i write about it and it's like if we nitpick to death everything that tries to change things everything that tries to uh make some kind of shift then we're basically training people to not try and i don't want to go back to the era where people were just adamantly not trying at the same time, like we all recognize here that we are not the people to be the arbiters of this and that I, like I didn't see it either. I took in this movie thinking like, what a what a vibrant celebration of the Latinx community, like how wonderful that we've gotten to a place where we can have this kind of representation on screen. And I didn't see it either. And I, I had the same feeling of feeling like I was being schooled and feeling like my own inadequacies were being pointed out. So to some degree, it's it's useful messaging, especially for the next time. It's useful to be reminded, but it isn't useful to discard every new thing that comes along for not being perfect, because then you never get to the perfect thing, because people are, are too afraid to, to try. I'm perpetually feeling the same way about intersectional feminism and the degree to which there's nothing that can be perfect, because there's always somebody that it leaves out, and therefore we need to discard the whole thing. It's just, you know, I wish we could celebrate what's there instead of uh, finding fault with what's not there. And that's more or less what Moreno said. But then, as people pointed out, she was like, you know, can't we just can't we just wait for the next thing? And they're like, we've been waiting for the next thing since West Side Story. And before then, we said this 60 years ago. You said this 60 years ago. Like, how long do we have to wait? And that's that's a really good point, too. Yeah. I mean, I think West Side Story is is illustrative here, uh, you know, because as, as you pointed out, I think in the last episode, Tasha, like, uh, it 
did have critics of, of at the time of its uh, representation of Puerto Ricans. And uh, did you come across anyone specifically talking about the the makeup or the the accents? As, as I don't think brownface was a term back then, but. I don't know that it was the the quotes that I saw were like papers like the New York Times papers of, of record mm-hmm. talked to people in the Puerto Rican community about how they felt they were being portrayed. And they felt it was a, a very negative portrayal. They felt that particularly the idea that uh, like white street gangs are armed with rocks and uh, like Latinx street gangs or black street gangs are armed with knives, that they're just inherently more dangerous and more of a threat was like a very dangerous and frightening message to be not necessarily putting out there just so much as internalizing it to the point where it was unquestioned. I see. And there were, there were people that just felt it represented them uh, poorly and, and in a negative light. So yeah, I guess like the the point I'm circling is like West Side Story also had you know sort of a controversy uh, at the time about its its representation, you know, and um, obviously the way we have had those discussions has has changed a lot in the in ensuing decades, but you know it's also a film that has endured despite those criticisms for for better or for worse, but. And even, you know, criticisms of the film that that have cropped up in the ensuing years, the the brown face stuff, the film's legacy is strong enough that it can absorb that and it can be a part of how we talk about the film, but it's not the only thing we consider, you know, when we talk about the film. And I think what I want for In the Heights is that is to have the same thing, you know, like this is a problem <laughs> that the film has and we can talk about it and we can acknowledge that it it failed in this way. And we can do that within the broader conversation of what the film does achieve and, and the other things it doesn't achieve. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's always something you can find to critique. And that's part of the fun of it, you know, and I don't really want to characterize it as fun when it's something that, you know, is about people's personhood. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think when we're talking about these controversies that pop up with new films, it's helpful for me to just kind of think about it 10 years from now, when people are like, revisiting in the Heights, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is a conversation we were having. And yeah, I can see that. But also, I can see all this other stuff about the film that is interesting to me, too. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the issue here is proportionality, I think. It's like, mm-hmm. and I think that, that what ends up happening in on the internet and on social media is that you is that it's almost like a brush fire that just Mm -hmm. like ignites and just and just or becomes a purity test right right exactly Mm, and and then and then you you get in the situation where it's like why are we just talking about amazon and nomadland (laughs) i was like two minutes of nomadland uh you know can we talk about the rest you know how it might fit into the rest of the film or just the rest of the film in general i think we do we do we're doing it here you know you know and we do it in our in our lives when we like talk about movies i mean we talk about a lot of different aspects of it um and uh it's just and that's a natural thing but i think i think that just the the medium of social media and just what in the kind of things that that uh essays that get assigned or whatever like that like it, it it does be it does kind of set off these brush fires that that make it seem like this is the largest thing or the only thing that we needed to talk about but i do all of that said i think i've learned quite a bit from this 
particular controversy because it was not it would never have occurred to me that this was an, an issue and now you know if you when, you when you give it some consideration it's like if you're from washington heights if this is your neighborhood and you don't see yourself on screen um that's a problem you know that's a and it, it, it hurts i'm sure it hurts so so um you know i'm happy to be aware of it and uh you know and uh, and i think you're right genevieve in that with time we can get a little bit of distance and, and kind of find a little bit of perspective on the on the work as a whole uh, that becomes a little bit harder to do in the in the moment. Well, we're going to have a very interesting time in December when Steven Spielberg's West Side Story comes <laughs> yep. out, and we f- we find out how it navigates all of this, like how from the, again from the trailers it looks like it it takes a lot of inspiration from the 61 version there's going to be a question of like how much does it update how does it update how does it handle casting how does it handle controversy and what kind of purity tests does it uh does it face itself and i think sounds this like, is just sounds like a bonus episode for us to do i think <laughs> this is a conversation that we're going to keep having and uh it's that's just gonna be a, an ongoing thing in cinema So West Side Story, the 1961 version at least, is widely available on streaming services, Blu-ray and DVD. And as of the day this podcast will be released, you're going to have about another week to watch it on Amazon Prime Video if you have that service. In the Heights is in theaters and it's streaming exclusively on HBO Max until July 11th. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world is good for you? So rather than something I've seen recently, I'm going to go with something I I saw in the last uh, year and a half while I was uh, oh plug time writing my book Age of Cage about the films of Nicolas Cage coming out in October. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, it's Rumblefish, which was Francis Ford Coppola's second adaptation of an S.E. Hinton novel. The first was The Outsiders. This was kind of like the artsy b-side to the outsiders which was kind of came together even the idea of doing it kind of came together while they were filming the outsiders se henton was was on um was on the set of the outsiders and you know coppola was having a good experience in oklahoma far away from hollywood where they wouldn't where they couldn't tell him what to do uh so he, <laughs> he decided to make a second film and and it's uh it's really striking rather than whereas outsiders was was a is quite popular um, and shot, you know, beautifully, but but conventionally, uh, this was a in a black and white film. Uh, I think he referred to it as like an art film for teenagers, and it's also you know the connection here for West Side Story is it's about uh, about gang life, but it's gang life in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there is you know there's a scene very early on like a gang fight that 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 calls back to West Side Story, but definitely has its own kind of kind of smoky energy to it as well. Well, but it's you know it, it's you know disaffected youth. It's it's anger and violence and and overreaching romantic feelings. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it's quite a good film. And I hadn't I had not seen it you know for until fairly recently, and and kind of blew me away how how much I admired and enjoyed it. So yeah, if if you're in the mood to pick up a Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray is always the way to go. But it's also rentable through the usual streaming services for for a modest fee. Uh, that's what you pay to to take that movie home for a little bit, watch it, and then give it back, digitally speaking. First of all, I think there's a tiny bit of color in Rumblefish, right? That's true. That's true. Uh, there's the painted the painted the paint fish. It's so gorgeous. 
And I just think, like, the, I mean, the, 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 it is, I think, you're like the cool B side of The Outsiders for sure. Because The Outsiders is a much more conventional, star packed drama and uh and rumblefish is way more experimental and and off-putting frankly but but good in a good way i kind of like them both equally and i just generally think like you know i mean copeless 70s period of course is is celebrated for good reason because i mean it was, it, you can't beat a run that's like both of the godfathers in the conversation and apocalypse now i mean those are his best films probably but but his 80s films they look incredible like mm-hmm. he, when he just like every one of them is just like just on a filmic level are just these beautiful works of art um you know once, once he started filming from his trailer or whatever like like fussing endlessly over over the way that his films looked i mean god they resulted in gorgeous movies i think it's fun to watch both of the se hinton coppola films uh one after the other because they're it's a real study in, in contrast uh it'd make it for a great you know special episode of the next picture show it's it's got a great commentary track from from Coppola who who's who's good at the, that kind of thing with a little mm-hmm. little, little bit of trivia. Uh, it was um, inspired. Uh, he, the, the the obviously the story itself is from Hinton, but his part of why he wanted to do it because he had uh, a similar. It's about a a young man who admires his uh, older brother, uh, more worldly brother, uh, the younger man played by Matt Dillon, and the older brother played by. Mickey Rourke and Coppola wanted to make it in part because of his relationship with August Coppola, uh, who is Nicolas Cage's father, and even like uh, outfits uh, Nicolas Cage in a um, um, in a in, in the jacket in, in the in the jacket that that August Coppola wore when he's part of like a, a social club in, in New Jersey, not not a gang, but but kind of the kind of the, like the local uh, the nonviolent equivalent of a gang uh, as well. So it's a it's 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 a deeply personal film for for him in ways that may not all be readily apparent based on the story. So, Tasha, how about you? Well, I this has been a long evening and uh, a long couple of podcasts. I'm going to try to keep it short and uh, maybe very specific. Uh, Keith, you should watch Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, man, I, I've been kind of uh, going over it in my head because, I, you know, I'm afraid of steering people in a direction where they're, they're going to find something that feels uh, dated or disrespectful. But this is a, a musical written by Jewish Americans, you know, created by Jewish Americans, adapting the words of uh, Shom Aleichem, you know, the, the classic Jewish storyteller. And, Kind of exploring their their own faith, their own history, their their own people through the window of this man who's finding his his faith and his traditions troubled. This man who's obsessed with living up to traditions and finding that the world is changing around him. And it's very comic in some ways. Uh, I would say a, a fair bit more than West Side Story, but it's also a pretty deep and emotional story with a lot of really well drawn characters who want very specific things for themselves and a couple of different love stories that I can actually really get behind. You know, uh, the Romeo and Juliet stories don't always work for me. Ingenue stories don't. Uh, movie musical stories often don't. But I think there are a couple of love stories in this musical that just really resonate, that feel real and, and feel lived in, and that you can honestly root for. There's some incredibly catchy and, and memorable songs, and the whole thing goes in a direction that I think is uh, unexpected, but 
just kind of delightful. It's it's one of those kind of cultural ubiquity movies that I think when you watch it for the first time, you'll find certain things that you've always kind of been aware of in the culture, like sliding into place in your head, just references and and gags and jokes and thoughts that you've always been aware of. Uh, you'll suddenly know where they're from. And in the same kind of way as a West Side Story, it's just it's a it's a classic for a reason. It's a classic because the details are specific and the emotions are deep and the songs are just incredibly singable. It is on Amazon Prime. It's on Netflix. It's it's really accessible and easy to watch. And just because of the way it starts in particular, I suspect if you find a free evening and, and just sit down and watch the first number, you'll find yourself pulled in. A recommendation specifically for Keith. <laughs> <laughs> well, d- despite um, you know me talking about how I've only seen high school productions of it, I think I've seen two high school productions of it, so I feel like I know <laughs> the play relatively well. Uh, I should actually getting around to see the the, the film, which I know is, is much admired and, and just one of those films I have not gotten to. It does open things up a bit. And, you know, people other than Keith should watch it. It's not entirely a a Keith-specific recommendation, but I don't know. I guess I haven't seen those uh, flawed high school productions that you've seen, so I I can't tell you how they compare. But I I think the movie does some some really good things to, to open it up and ground it in realism. Scott, what about you? So I recently, the Washington Post recently ran a piece uh, that I wrote about Liam Neeson, uh, particularly the action films of Liam Neeson, Taken and Beyond. And I, I went on in, in less than a week, I, I watched uh, like 14 <laughs> Liam ne- Neeson action movies, um, all three Takens and, and uh, you know, the the recent ones that were released during the pandemic, the, the, the Marksman and Honest Thief. But I wanted, you know, to call attention to one. I found particularly interesting because they, they kind of blend together in not a, in not an unpleasant way. I mean, there's something reliable about a Liam Neeson action movie that I can see, you can see why people would be like, I'm in the mood for that. And you, they, and they deliver what you're in the mood for. But one kind the of, one standout for me uh, in this whole big watch or rewatch uh, was, is a, the movie um, a walk among the tombstones. Mm. Uh, this is a film that was directed by Scott Frank, uh, Scott Frank, who wrote the screenplay for out of sight and who recently did the two quite good Netflix limited series, um, godless and the queen's gambit, uh, very talented uh, fellow. And this is one where there's a little bit more, color and nuance to what Neeson is being asked to do than some of the other films. The other films, he's, he's just kind of going about his business, you know, taking care. To, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of grim business that he needs to do some uh, delivering, metting out justice. But here he's a much more troubled character. He's a, he, you know, the beginning of the film, he's a, a, a cop who, who drinks heavily and, it, you know, and in one of those moments when he is drinking heavily uh, he gets involved in a shootout that does not uh, go particularly well because he's as inebriated as he is and um and uh and it picks up with him later uh when he has become a, a private investigator and uh and a a drug king play pin played by dan stevens asks him to find this uh, the people responsible for 
uh, kidnapping uh, and uh, and killing his wife. And uh, so he, he's about, he kind of gets to the bottom of that and goes through a lot to, to, to do it. And it's just one of those things where it's just textured enough to, to set itself apart from all of the other Liam Neeson movies that I saw. And I don't think it got, I don't think a, a lot of people responded to it that much when it came out. It, feel, it feels like it's been a little bit forgotten. I think I think it's a really good pulp thriller with just a, a bit more texture and nuance than we're used to seeing from that sort of thing and and uh and so i think of the lot of the 14 that i that i revisited that would be kind of the one i'd, I'd lead toward as as being you know maybe a, a a notch above the gray is kind of that way too but but um, i like the gray i, I like to w- walk among the tombstones did anyone see that one I didn't. I was. I had to look up the plot to make sure uh, to yes. remind myself whether whether or not I had or not. It came out at a time when I was. I think I was watching most Liam Neeson films. It's as hard they, to tell as they, as they came out, but it also came out the same year as Nonstop, uh-huh. Walk Among the Tombstones, and Taken Three. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he was put, putting out an amazing clip, and and uh, no, I did not see that one. I, I I remember. I think I remember at the time it getting decent reviews, but um, I did yeah, see I Taken mean, Three. The, the, I, I did see Nonstop. I, it's the one I did Nonstop not see good. that year. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, but it becomes kind of like with those films. It's like, oh yeah, Nonstop is the one with the plane, and yep. the commuter is the one with the train, and like it's like it's very. That's how you remember them because the titles tend to be are sometimes generic and the plots are you know i mean they are what they are they're they're fairly well done genre f- films with a with a solid you know actor doing kind of clint eastwoody things in the middle um but this one stands apart uh what about you genevieve what, what have you what have you seen well i haven't seen this film uh recently and I'm, I'm disappointed about that because it's a film that i wanted to to recommend uh for this but i don't think i can because it's not really available but um we didn't talk much about uh jimmy smith's in, in in the heights but i it made me uh think of the the first film in which i i saw jimmy smith's uh back in 1995 which is the film me familia or or my family. Um, mm. It was really released as both. It was uh, by Gregory Nava. And as I said, it is like apparently nowhere online. So I feel like I can't really recommend it uh, in part because it's not available and in part because I, I haven't seen it in well over 20 years. But I remember really, really liking it when I was sort of a, a young teenager, which is always like a little a tricky proposition when you're recommending something as, as an adult that you really loved as a teenager and haven't seen since then. But uh, my, my suspicion is that it holds up pretty well. Um, it's a sort of a, a family drama uh, covering three generations of uh, a Mexican immigrant family into Los Angeles. It starts in the 1930s and kind of goes through the the late 1960s. And Jimmy Smits is one of the stars, along with uh, Edward James Olmos. And a, a very young Jennifer Lopez pops up in there, too. So I'm, I'm more just mentioning it than, than recommending it. Uh, if anyone out there uh, sees it or has uh, has seen it or has a recollection of it, do any of you know this this film? I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, I, though, though, I know though Roger Ebert was a huge booster for Gregory Nava. He really liked Gregory Nava's film. Yeah. So, so he has your back on it. Yeah, and, and I believe he has uh, my back on this film in particular. If the uh, Wikipedia is is to be believed, uh, he uh, Ebert gave it gave it a positive review. Um, so if, I don't know if anyone out there has fond memories of of Me Familia. Uh, you know, I, I feel you there. Um, but so instead, I am going to recommend a film that is is very available online or is is very just very online in general. And I guess 
you know, me calling it a film might might rankle some people, but um, I'm talking about Bo Burnham's Inside, which mm. is a new Netflix comedy special, I guess, but it feels very strange to, to characterize it as a uh, comedy. I mean, it's certainly funny um, in parts, but it's also extremely dark in parts. Um, it's obviously done by by Bo Burnham, who uh, I think we've maybe talked about on this podcast before in relation to uh, Eighth Grade, a film he directed a couple years ago that I think we all uh, liked quite a bit. But uh, before that, he was you know more known as a, a comedian, specifically a, a comedian who who does songs and even before that as a, a youtuber you know he kind of became famous uh on, on youtube uh you know making videos on his computer and uh the special inside finds him kind of returning to that but in a wildly different context uh this is a pandemic special it was conceived written filmed performed and only by burnham in a single room pretty much a single room in his home during the pandemic and it is such a little a curio of of this moment in time uh it is it is still based in in songs that burnham writes and performs and those songs in general are you know kind of about sort of the nature of creativity, creation, uh, attention, having an audience, or the desire for an audience, um, and about the, the internet. I think the probably the standout song is uh, features Burnham as sort of a, a carnival barker type, uh, inviting you to the internet, where you can have a little bit of everything all of the time, is the the chorus. It's a very catchy, catchy chorus. But a little bit of everything all of the time also kind of feels like sort of an apt you know, encapsulation of inside too. It, it's like it's like kind of a film. It's kind of a comedy special. It's kind of a you know YouTube video. It's it's like it's a content. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> um, but it's really exceptionally well executed. I think, and it's so interesting. What you know, whether you like engage with Burnham's subject matter and his comedy, I think it's interesting just as sort of a filmmaking experiment, watching him create these interesting and distinct shots and moods and and set pieces all inside of this room with equipment, you know, that he's ordering on Amazon or whatever, you, you know, like it, as, as, a, as a single, as a singular creative vision, it's definitely worth at least checking out uh, with the caveat that like it may not be quite your speed but i think it is definitely something that is at least like worthy of your attention Did, have any of you seen it yet i know we kind of talked about doing a bonus episode on it but i don't think any of you got around to it just yet not yet it's it's on it's on the list it's definitely high on the list Same. but i have not watched it yeah all right i'm based on this i'm bumping up the list i have <laughs> i've had it recommended to me by so many people so much and uh thanks to juneteenth we've got a three-day weekend coming up and i'm going to declare no excuse uh weekend <laughs> and get this watched nice yeah i'm 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 curious to hear all of your thoughts uh you you especially tasha so but uh in the meantime consider this my recommendation to uh to our listeners as well to check out uh inside uh bo burnham's inside it's on netflix well that's a lot of recommendation and a lot of time and we've spent a lot of time with you uh on this particular episode so we're gonna wrap it up and say goodbye thank you to everybody for your recommendations And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We're going to take a small break next week, and our next pairing will return the week after, on July 13th and 20th. 
We'll be looking at two films about two music festivals held in the summer of 1969, one you've definitely heard of and one you probably haven't. First, we'll revisit the landmark documentary Woodstock, a concert film, an invaluable cultural documentary about the Woodstock Music Festival. Then we'll discuss Summer of Soul, the first documentary from Amir Questlove Thompson, which draws on hours of never-before-seen footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival and alternates between contemporary reflections on the event and musical performances by Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, and many, many others. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of West Side Story, In the Heights, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am the TV editor at vulture.com and uh, sporadically on uh, Twitter and hell, Instagram at uh, Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Scott, what about you? Um, I'm on Twitter at scott underscore tobias uh, you can find my work at the new york times the washington post um uh, i'm very hitting the anniversary beat hard at the guardian i've got three <laughs> new ones there for, on, on on the rocketeer clute and ai uh, happening and i'm the uh editor-in-chief of oscilloscopes musings blog keith I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kfip3000. You can find my uh, also find my Shrek fan site at shrekfans.com. Uh, we've been really busy Wait, lately for Shrek some reason. It's not Shrek OnlyFans, is it? <laughs> Shrek, oh, oh God, God no! I know, uh, no, but you people, can also it, angry people have to get buy as much merch as possible. Uh, you can usually find my writing at places like GQ, TV Guide, uh, Vulture, a bunch of a bunch of other places, uh, Polygon, uh, and and so on and so forth. Uh, again. And best place to find me and my writing links are is on Twitter at kfips3000. Tasha, how about you? I am the film and TV editor at polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, where I am not the main character of the day. Maybe I don't write enough anniversary pieces. I'll have to work on that. <laughs> you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That uh, episode that we recorded about the the state of streaming services is one big sprawling conversation, y'all. So <laughs> if you haven't had enough of us today, you can get a whole lot more of us tomorrow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help other people find your very favorite movie podcast of all time. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Oh, piragua, piragua, no placa vai piragua, 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 so sweet and nice piragua. Tengo.